following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today I'm going to talk with you about um, where is God when bad things happen? Where is God when bad things happen? Not yes or amen. Just keep going. I'll go with that. So um, uh, my goal is twofold. Um, to give you a, a, a bit of an apologetic, that's a, that's a defense of the goodness of God and of the, of the wisdom of God when bad things happen and when people are going through it. Um, and, and two, to be able to just defend uh, your faith, which is kind of what apologetics is. We there? Let me go to my first slide. Uh, okay. It's one of those things that worked in practice, right? And uh, we'll make sure we get audio on there as well, too. Um, there we go. That's us. Okay, so how many have ever heard of and seen? Yes and amen. <laughs> uh, we're getting there. Don't click it. All right, I won't click it. You click it for me, my love. How many of you have ever heard of this man, Billy Graham? I, I would think you'd be living in a hole if you hadn't. Probably has brought more people to the Lord than anyone on the planet before. How many have ever heard and know of this man? Raise your hand if you've heard of Charles Templeton. He and Billy Graham started Youth for Christ in 1945. And in 1946, Templeton was voted to be the most influential uh, evangelical on the planet. He was the more versatile and gifted evangelist. So why have you not continued to hear of Charles Templeton? Well, about a decade later, he gave up the last bit of his faith. He lost his faith. He had seen too much evil and pain and suffering in the world and dropped his faith. In the last book he wrote about it, this one, he says, when an earthquake in Turkey, buries thousands alive. When a typhoon drowns 150,000 Pakistanis over a weekend. When a drought in Somalia kills thousands of men, women, and children by starvation. Why does a loving God not do something to help the helpless? That was it. He just couldn't, couldn't reconcile a good God with all the tragedy and evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And so... It's why many people like Charles Templeton have walked away from the faith. Many people are deconstructing these days. It's one of the most frequent objections to the Christian faith. And it's why many have rejected Christianity altogether. There was once a young 13-year-old boy <clears throat> who had learned about a famine in Biafra, Africa, 1968. Lots of children starved to death. People starved to death. <clears throat> he went to church that, that Sunday and asked the minister, did, did God know about this beforehand? Did he know? <clears throat> and all, of his, all his pastor said was, uh, sorry, son, uh, I know it's difficult to understand, but yes, God knew about this. Without giving him any apologetic, like I'm going to give you today, without any defense in God's goodness or anything. Well, that 13-year-old made up his mind, if this is what God is like, I don't want anything to do with him. And he never dawned, uh, darkened a church door again. The 13-year-old I'm talking about is none other than Stephen Jobs. Imagine what a Christian philanthropist we could have had in him had the pastor just taken a bit of time to tell him some of the things I'll tell you today. 
So for generations, it's been the greatest challenge, thank you, to Christian faith. C.S. Lewis of Narnia said this. He said, evil is atheism's most potent weapon. Most potent weapon against the Christian faith. And typically, the angry atheist rant goes something like this. Hopefully, we'll get a bit of sound on this. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, that is the odyssey, I think, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's the Archbishop of Canterbury who said, well, would you expect to get into heaven with that? No, I wouldn't want to. So that's your, your typical angry rant like that. And we do see evil. We see it on three levels. We see, we, what we see moral evil, natural evil, and social evil. Morally, uh, we see people doing reprehensible things, slavery and genocide and uh, crime and poverty. Um, natural evil, such as hurricanes and droughts and tornadoes that strike areas. And then systemic, systematic evil, like slavery and, and whatnot, corporate greed that we see. The atheist would argue something like what Sam Harris said. Sam Harris says either God cannot, can do nothing to stop catastrophes like this, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. Take your pick and choose wisely. Now, that's his argument. The formal argument, if you had to structure it like a formal argument, you would, it would look something like this. It would, it would have some premises. Go ahead to the next slide. Premise one, if God exists, he is, that is by definition, all-powerful, that's omnipotent, all-knowing, that's omniscient, and all-loving, that's omnibenevolent. And if this kind of God exists, he would not allow evil to occur in this world. Premise three, evil does occur in this world, so the conclusion Therefore, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God does not exist. But, my friends, the devil is always in the details, is he not? I mean, sorry, we got the last premise. The devil's in the details. In other words, that thing that just sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't, right? My wife, she, we do kids' camps, and she bought these cups. It seemed like, wow, 200 cups, a cup for every kid for only uh, $600. That's $3 a cup. Well, when we get a case of only 20 of them landed in the country, where's the rest? And she reads the fine print. No, they were, they were $30 per cup. So, so she's trying to get rid of these cups. If you want to buy a, a double-walled insulative cup, see my wife afterwards, we'll get rid of these. The devil's in the details, right? It's true. So let's look at the argument again and ask ourselves, uh, is the form correct? Yes, it has three premises and a conclusion. That's right. Well, what about the premises leading up to the conclusion? Are they correct? And we'll go to the next slide. I, I think premise one and three are correct. If God exists, he's all-powerful, knowing and loving. Yes, evil does exist in the world. Every, everywhere in the world, every type of world. It strikes the good and the bad. We've experienced it ourselves, I'm sure. So does the conclusion follow? The next slide, the next click. Therefore, 
God does not exist. Well, I would propose an argument that would be structured a little bit differently than this. Um, go to the next slide. If God exists, he's all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing. And premise two, if this kind of God exists, he would not allow evil to occur in the world unnecessarily, I would add that, or without good reason, right? In other words, he's not capricious. By the word, by the way, how much evil would it take to disprove God? If, if a bacteria lived for maybe only two hours instead of its expected ten hours, is that evil? Oh, there must not be a God. If a human gets a heartache, can you say, oh, there is no God? Or a toe ache or a stomach ache. Or he doesn't reach 82.7 years life expectancy average, but he only lives for 75. At what point can you dismiss and say, well, there, there must be no God? That's why most philosophers have given up this argument trying to disprove God based on evil. So premise three, we do see evil in this world. And premise four, if you can go to the next one, therefore... An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God may be temporarily allowing evil for the purposes we're not aware of or can't fully appreciate or even understand, right? And before we jump right into, okay, what are the possible, um, you know, reasons why God might allow evil, let me give a few words of caution. Now, as believers, as people, we're sometimes tended to think that we're, we're, we're more compassionate than God, more sympathetic than God, more merciful, more loving than God. I remember when we were in our, I think, late 20s, maybe early 30s, the pastor of our church, he was young as well. He had three kids, was it four, under the age of, under the age of 12. His wife comes down with cancer. Everybody on the planet's praying for her. You probably prayed for her too, didn't even know it. But everybody was praying, and she ended up dying of cancer. And in my heart of hearts, I didn't say this out loud. It would have been blasphemy and heretical. God, I could have done a better job than that. You missed a great opportunity to alleviate a lot of suffering in the husband and the children in the church. And God, you missed a great opportunity to glorify yourself and show everybody how wonderful you are. In other words, without me saying, God, I could do a better job running the universe in this case than you could. That's what I was thinking, right? But think of how illogical and crazy that would be that God would create a, a creature, me, that would have a greater morality. It would be like him creating a creature that was more powerful than him or wiser than him. A greater sense of morality and sympathy and compassion and love than him. How silly that, that the creature was greater than the creator. Put another way, the only reason we have sympathy and love and morality and compassion is because we are created in the image of a God who instilled that in us. We're made in his image and made in his likeness, right? Some Bible authors emphasize this. We go to the next slide. Abraham, he stated to, to God, he says, no, back one. It'll, it'll go. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What about the people, God, who have never heard the gospel? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The next scripture, Moses. He said, he is the rock. His works are perfect all of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And to me, this is, this is part of faith. Upright and just and faithful. Because let's face it, we often are given opportunities to doubt that about God, right? So sometimes we mortals try and put God on trial. 
we try to judge whether really he really does have good reason to allow things to happen or not. But this is actually impossible for us to do because he is omniscient. He knows everything beginning to end, and we, we are not. And this lack of knowledge prevents us from knowing whether something is going to be ultimately good or ultimately evil. Something which seems to us to be just the bee's knees, the most wonderful thing that ever happened, might end up being something that ultimately leads to a lot of problems and havoc. 1955, the World Health Organization decided to eradicate malaria. Mosquitoes. This is down here, isn't it? Losing my mic and my hair and my marbles. We good? Better? Thank you. Just go like this. So they decided they're going to eradicate uh, mosquitoes. World War II wiped out a lot of troops because they came home with malaria or didn't come home at all with malaria, right? So they decided to get rid of malaria. Let's invent a pesticide. So they invented a pesticide. Um, and this stuff was very, very effective. It wiped out mosquitoes like nobody's business. Um, they eliminated the disease in North America, Europe, Soviet Union, Taiwan, much of the Caribbean, parts of North Africa, Australia, and large parts of the South Pacific, including typhus and dinghy fever, which are also spread by mosquitoes. This, this, the pesticide was really cheap to produce. It was easy to make and highly effective. You could get this stuff at your local home and garden centers. People were spraying it on their cereal practically. It was used everywhere. Little did they know, even though it was phenomenal results, Later did they realize that DDT, some of you older people might have heard of this, it has some really bad side effects. It has a, a soil half-life of up to 30 years. If it gets in the soil, it stays there for about 33 year, 30 years. It has an aquatic half-life. If it gets in rivers and streams in the ocean, it can last up to 150 years. And it bioaccumulates. I used to be a science teacher. I can't help myself. It means it gets in plants. Little fish eat those plants, and it gets in the fatty tissue of those. And then bigger fish eat those, and it gets in those. And predatory birds or whatever, or humans, eat the tuna, and it gets there. The World Health Organization realized this and, and banned all commercial use in 1972. But yet in 2005... Uh, the WHO tested uh, lots, CDC rather, tested um, lots and lots of human beings and found that everyone tested still had traces of it in their blood. Did I mention it's a, it's a suspected carcinogen and an endocrine disruptor? And it almost caused the California condor and the peregrine falcon to go extinct because of thin, thinning eggshells? So what we saw initially as, man, this is the best thing. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we realized uh, it didn't turn out being so good. I can sympathize with some of the older people that were a little reluctant to get the uh, corona vaccine because all that glitters is not gold sometimes. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving a pro or anti stance. Ask Pastor Ruben about that. On the other hand, something which might be perceived as immediately awful no possible way to justify this, right? It could end up being ultimately good. For example, there was once a man who was heinously tortured. And he was executed by a very brutal regime, a very brutal government. And the man was not only perfectly innocent, but he was a model citizen. His friends and family were shocked and horrified and confused. God, how could you let this happen? We had great hopes for this man. How could this in any way work for greater good? And you guess the punchline twist I'm going with this? I'm talking about Jesus Christ. That was the ultimate 
atrocity and breach of justice. The biggest breach of justice in all humanity ever. And it not only resulted in good, but infinite good, eternal good for all mankind. And who would have guessed it at the time when it was happening? The disciples were shocked and went back to fishing, right? Only in hindsight, in 2,000-something years after, can we look back on it and say, yeah, okay, we can now see what God is doing in that. A modern-day skeptic might ask, why could God allow this guy to grow up to be an adult? Adolf Hitler was responsible for the, for the, the murder of millions of people. Why didn't God just kill him when he was an infant or toddler in 19, excuse me, 1889? Yet, you see, if baby Hitler had died when he was young... <laughs> You could imagine the skeptic of 1889. Why would God's little baby Adolf, such an innocent little baby, without their omniscience, without their foreknowledge of what he was going to turn into be, right? And some people say, well, well, God could have just prevented his birth altogether. That would make more sense. Make sure I'm still on with you guys. Good. But see, the problem is, if God prevented the birth of all evil human beings, guess how many people would be in this room today? You see, you say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, not according to, to Jesus, you, you have. He said, if you've ever hated someone, you've murdered in your heart, right? You see, God, he's not just just, he's infinitely just. He ju doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, that's kind of bad, but that's really bad. He sees either righteous, like himself, or he sees evil and wicked. And so, it's pure arrogance for us to try and accuse God on our limited knowledge, on our limited understanding, because he has eternal plans and purposes. You think about us as parents. Think about your three, four, five-year-old. If they had the vocabulary, they could accuse you of being an evil parent. My parent took me down to the doctor last week and gave me a jab. I had the doctor and a jab, and I wasn't even sick. <sighs> I ran into an empty street, and I got the hiding of my life. And he had to say, oh, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And this is for your own good. <sighs> I doubt it, right? <laughs> and why can't I have ice cream whenever I want? It's harmless. It tastes good. My parents are just evil. They're capricious. In other words, they flip a coin to decide what happens in my life. Sheer evil without any justification. And we laugh about this because a lot of you, I'm seeing some of your parents and grandparents, Right? You've gained that wisdom. Not only was there good reason for the dad, the parent, to act or not act in every case, but ironically, in every case, what was done or what was not done was for the good of the child, for the benefit of the four-year-old, right? It's like what Tim Keller points out. He says, just because you don't see a reason for evil and suffering doesn't mean there's not a good reason for it. The four-year-old can't see any reason at all. It's beyond him. His conclusion is you're just capricious and evil and mean and nasty. So if the four-year-old doesn't understand with his limited understanding, think of the, the, the wisdom gap between the four-year-old and you. That's a long way, but think about the wisdom gap between you and God. There's an infinite gap there. So we can't expect to understand his ways, right? Why he does things. He has eternal perspectives. We, we're so earthbound that we just see things in the here and the now. And he has a different set of priorities. I concur with the French Dominican Jacques-Marie-Louis Monsabre. He said this place. He said, if God 
would give me his omnipotence, his wisdom, for 24 hours, I would make a lot of big changes in the world. But he goes on to say, if he gave me his omniscience too, sorry, if he gave me his power, I'd change this. If he gave me his omniscience too, things would probably not change at all. Yeah. God tells us plainly in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says this. Go to the next scripture. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He tells us plainly. So if we can't expect to understand everything, much less put God on trial, then, then you know, Stephen Fry, he, he tended to think he sat from a position of omniscience. Why, how could God possibly do this or allow this or let this? As though he has a bird's eye view of everything, and he's not, and we don't. Some people would argue, well, if God were really omnipotent, could do anything, then why didn't he make a, a world that was completely free of evil, pain, and suffering? He could have. Apple could have made your iPhone where the battery lasts for an entire year. They could have. What would be the problems? What would be the design constraints? It get a little tricky. It would be the size of a car battery, and it would weigh like a car battery, right? So there are design constraints. Yes, God could have made a world without evil and pain and suffering at all, but you know that what that world would have lacked? It would have lacked free will, free choice. We would have been, had to be made robots, right? And people say, well, God is omnipotent. He can do all things, all actual things, all logical things, all possible things. God nor anybody could make a square circle or a married bachelor, right? That's not what omnipotence is. It's able to do all actual things. So it's just logically impossible that a free moral agent would always freely do to choose to, to say and do and think only what is morally right. I mean, for instance, if I said, man, I do a lot of presenting, this, this, this headset even though it keeps popping off my head, would be great for my Bible and school programs. I'll just walk off. With, yeah, they'll never know. I can't. Right? That's what the world would be like. You couldn't do anything evil at all. You would be robots and automatons. And so we got to ask ourselves, which is more loving of God to make a world, to create a world where genuine love is possible, but so is evil and pain and suffering? Or to create a world where... There's no evil, pain, and suffering at all. It's impossible. But then so is true love. I would say the first is a more loving, loving thing of God to do. So back to the question. Back to the second premise then. What good reasons? Why would God possibly allow this evil and pain and suffering? Why do we have it? And I've already touched a few things. One, the only reason we can speak of evil and morality is because we're made in the image of a God who is moral and loving and just. And two, without his omniscience, we're unable to judge what's ultimately and infinitely good or bad. But a few, a few key thoughts, and I need to warn you, you're not going to be fully satisfied. It's like taking a peek through a frosted glass. You, you know somebody's on the other side, but you can't make out the fine details. So I'll give you some possible reasons, but it's not like going to give you a fine, you know, HD resolution on the issue. So that's just a, a warning, if you will. So 
The first point, it's an emotionally charged problem. It's an emotionally charged problem. There's more emotion in it than reason and intellect and rationale. <clears throat> it's hard to think rationally when you're upset. Think about you getting an argument or, you know, any kind of you're upset. It's hard to think rationally about it. Charles Darwin <clears throat> trained to be a minister. He lost his faith. It wasn't because of the Darwinian theory and science. It was because, I must apologize. <clears throat> It was because his 12-year-old daughter, Anna, got sick and died, despite everybody praying for him. It was an emotional reason he lost his faith. In 2008, we had come here in 2004 to do ministry work. And in 2008, the wheels fell off in every way they could fall off. We had invested some money in Wanaka, South Island, bought some property because we left our jobs and retirements and teachers, and we got to do something for our future. So all of our savings went into this Wanaka place. You know, you can never go wrong with real estate, right? Wrong. <laughs> you can absolutely lose everything you have. And so we did in 2008. But that wasn't the worst of it by far. <clears throat> Our 17-year-old daughter started to date this young man she worked with at Harvey Norman and decided it would be a good idea to move out of our house and move in with him. <sighs> you talk about what? Shock. God, I gave up everything you owe me. It didn't come out of my mouth, but it sure was in my heart, right? You know, we, from out of the womb, she was in church and daily devotions and everything. We did everything we could thinking, yeah, we're gonna, this is going to work out right the way we planned. And thirdly, the ministry organization, we're doing university campus evangelism, University of Auckland. That ministry, we kind of parted ways. We started raising our hands to some objections. It seems like you're kind of micromanaging these young people and, and shepherding them rather than discipling them. And you're making disciples unto yourselves rather than to Jesus. And we see problems. And boy, that didn't go over well. Let's just say they gave us the right foot of fellowship. And man, we thought, oh, this is awful. I was at an all-time low. My faith was at an all-time low. I'll never forget being on the beach in Samoa supposed to teach about faith of all things, of all things. I'm going to teach this Bible school about faith. And my wife asking me, do you still believe in God? I said, yeah, I still believe in God. He said, do you still believe Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins? Just wanting to tick off the boxes for me. I said, yeah, but right about now, that's about all I believe. If somebody would have piped up and said, God is good, my first response wouldn't have been all the time. I'd have been like, not, not, not in the goodness that I'm thinking of and the goodness that I'm, I'm aware of. Things seem to be terrible at that time. So it's an emotionally charged story. Emotions are real, but they're not reasonable. All right? Second point is suffering is not part of God's originally created order. The way things are are not the way God originally created them to be. Everything he created, he said, is either good or very good, right? So no, Stephen Fry, it was not part of God's original plan for parasitic insects to borrow into the eyes of, of young children. There's a lot of evidence that lots of harmful bacteria and viruses started good but mutated, right? Sometimes the suffering we endure is because we live in a part of a broken and fallen world. Earthquakes, typhoons, floods, droughts, etc., the very outrage of it tells us that something's wrong. We know in our heart of hearts something's not right, and we're right. He didn't create it to be this way, and it's not going to be this way at the end of time. The Bible says in Romans 8.21, it says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The world is in a bondage of decay. 
So it tells the Christians something is not right. Atheists, well, if they say it's not right, I say, on what grounds? On what grounds? If you're just lucky chemicals and lucky mud, we live, we die, that's it. Stuff happens type of thing. Our next point, sometimes suffering is due to our own foolishness or sins. You look on YouTube, you see all kinds of foolishness, right? People doing crazy things, usually they're teenage boys. I can skateboard off of this roof. Oh, let's think about that for a second, right? My grandfather died of emphysema because he smoked from the age of 13. My, my, my mom is in liver failure because she's been drinking like a fish for the last 20 years. Those are their own sins and, and foolishness um, that they're suffering from, right? And so... Again, if God was obligated to stop any act, sorry, go to the next point, is it, sometimes our suffering is due to the sins and the evil intent of other people. We're victims of someone else's greed or lust or cruelty. And again, if God was obligated to stop any act of evil, he would have to stop every act of evil. We live in a free world, and sometimes that's quite painful. One good which can come from evil, pain, and suffering, especially true, for his children, but not exclusive. That's the next one. Um, some lessons are only learned through suffering and pain. Back to my story in 2008. Before 2008, I had a very, a very transactional theology. I do A plus B. God's got to do C. Like a big slot machine or genie in the sky. I raise my children A, B, C, and they're got, they've got to turn out D. And therefore, I had very little grace with things that weren't turning out right in other people's life. Oh, things are bad, and you're, oh, let me pray for you. In my mind and heart, I'm thinking, where'd you screw up, man? Are you forsaking your family? Yeah, you were out making millions or, you know, winning the loss at the sake of your family. That was in my heart, man. And it would have never come out if God hadn't body slammed. My theology changed. I'm a much more gross, grace, gross person, grace-filled person today. Much more grace-filled from the heart. And my daughter, she's come around. She has a sensitive heart to the Lord. Not quite going to church yet because her husband doesn't go. But her heart is right with God. And so I can only see that in hindsight. But there was a purpose for it that I can see now these, I don't know, 14 or so years later. I certainly couldn't see it in the emotional moment of the time. So I, I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. When everything's going right, he might be trying to whisper to you, Todd, Todd, your theology's wrong, man. Just because you raise your kids up right. I mean, look at Cain killed Abel. You know, Adam disobeyed. He had a perfect father. But I wasn't listening. I wasn't ready to listen. But boy, when I was on my back, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? There's certain streams of Christian theology that would try and say, if you're going through evil pain or suffering or any kind of disconvenience, um, you just don't have enough faith. God's, his, his best plan for your life is for your ease and for your convenience and comfort. One person wrote a book called Your Best Life Now, as if that were God's highest priority. How many of you natural parents have your kids' comfort and ease as your highest priority? As long as you feel good, as long as you're comfortable, no, we have their character development as their highest priority. How many were told as, as, as little kids, oh, a little bit of blank is not going to kill you. A little bit of hard work is not going to kill you. A little bit of pain is not going to kill you. A little bit of waiting, patience. A little bit of hunger is not going to kill you. And they were right. It didn't kill you. It made you develop character. God wants us to look like his son, Jesus Christ. That's his ultimate goal. Not that we're comfortable. Not that we're happy. 
Those are side effects sometimes and benefits sometimes, but not always, right? Again, God plainly tells us in Scripture in 1 Peter, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. All kinds. Like a broken arm. As you can see, I can't comb my hair very well. Can't vacuum. Sorry, don't know. Actually, I can vacuum a little bit. But just little niggly things. I almost couldn't get on the plane last weekend with Jetstar to do a youth conference down there in Dunedin because they were afraid it was going to swell. You know, on the plane. I had to beg. Please let me on. I'm the keynote speaker. So they finally let me on. When did you say that you did it? A week ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a week ago. It was only like a day in the past. Anyway, it says these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Another good which can come out of suffering, pain, and evil. Probably the best that can come out of it. The, the, the greatest good is this one. Pain, the heartache and pain of this world make people long for another. It's true. It's certainly possible that God uses the natural evil and moral evils in our world to increase our longing for another world. You ever wonder why before COVID you go into a pub and you'd see salted peanuts? Free! Why would they give us salted peanuts? They're expensive. They want to whet your appetite, don't they? They want you to hunger and thirst for something more expensive, some beer or whatever. They want you to buy that, right? And in the same way, sometimes the brokenness of this world can cause us to really long for another. I'm tired of this world, God. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something more. It's like God says, you know, this is what a broken, fallen world looks like. This is what rebellion looks like. It's a result of sin. I want you to long for something better, something different. So evil and suffering and pain sometimes causes people to seek for and begin a relationship with God. And like I said, God's ultimate goal is not our, our happiness or comfort, but an increasing knowledge and hunger for Him, that the greatest amount of people will freely choose Him which alone is going to bring eternal happiness. Uh, it's quite ironic that this keeps, keeps falling off my head. No, it's quite ironic that it, Christianity is growing the fastest in, in places of the world where there's the most persecution, where there's the most suffering, where there's the most problems in the world, Ethiopia and Sudan, the Philippines, China, El Salvador. Christianity is growing there because they're longing for something better, something different. So, if there's even just one reason why God might allow evil, pain, and suffering in this world, then you can't say there's no God. That argument goes debunked if there's any good reasons. I agree with Rabbi Milton Steinberg. He says, the believer has to account for unjust suffering. That's what I'm trying to do today. But the atheist has to account for the existence of everything else. Why is there love in this world? Why is there beauty? Why is there poetry? Why is there music? Why is there, you know, a universe at all? Why is there intelligence in the world? Why is there altruism and self-sacrifice? Those things should not happen on an atheistic worldview if all there are atoms and molecules and it's been a survival of the fittest. So... The atheist worldview is powerless to explain these things. A few more crucial points and I'm done. One is, <clears throat> it's crucial to remember, 
<clears throat> excuse me, that life doesn't end at the grave. <clears throat> life doesn't end at the grave. <clears throat> if this life alone were all we had, it would be right. We could question God's goodness, God's fairness, his motives, and his methods, but he promises in his word that this life is not. The eternal God sees things from an eternal perspective, and it's impossible for us to do that, and it's easy to forget that. If today were all we had, it would be evil for us to deprive our children ice cream. Why not? Why not let them stay up all night long if today was all we had? But you know that, no, he's got a lifetime to live ahead of him. God knows there's an eternity ahead of us. So God has all eternity to bring a day of reckoning for evildoers. And so the altered conclusion number four there, he may be temporarily allowing it for his own reasons, for his own purposes. And let me offer this bit of hope for you. If you feel like you've been robbed in this life, if you feel like you have suffered more than most people emotionally, maybe physically, and God's not been fair to you, he has all eternity to make that up to you. All eternity to make it up to you. He has all eternity to show you like you could show your, your four-year-old if you could just zoom him into a 30-year-old body. Oh, that's why, oh, you didn't let me have ice cream. That's why I couldn't stay up all night. That's why you gave me a vaccination jab. I think when we meet Jesus face-to-face, -face, there'll be that aha moment, that plot twist of who we thought was evil was actually very, very good. We've seen movies like that, right? Mother Teresa, who... Uh, she dealt with a lot of pain and misery and suffering on a daily basis. She had this to offer. She said, in light of heaven, in other words, when we've been there 10,000 years in the presence of ultimate, infinite love and joy and peace, eternal righteousness and justice, without tears, without sorrow, without pain, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on earth, will be seen to be nothing more serious than one night in an in inconvenient hotel. Now, when we look back on it, we'll say that that really wasn't much compared to what I'm experiencing here. And my last point is it's what distinguishes Christianity from every other faith on the planet, and it's this. It's that God is not only not, he's not distant or, or removed or unaware or immune to human suffering, but God, he's... He, he understands suffering. He's intimately involved in our suffering. He suffers with us. Jesus will forever bear the scars that he had when he came to earth. God condescended and became a man. And so Jesus has suffered in every way we can suffer, emotionally and mentally and socially, all of them. He suffered, but to a greater degree because of his innocence. He knows how we're feeling. He understands. So I concur with the theologian John Stott who says, I could never believe in God, the love of God, the goodness of God, if it weren't for the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he said. So, evangelistically, you meet somebody that's going through it. I mean something terrible. Be compassionate. The Bible says weep with those who weep, especially if they're the ones going through it. Now, if they're talking about abstract someplace else in the world, not even them, then you can give them this apologetic some possible reasons. But when they're going through it, that the emotions are rich and you just sit there and you just weep with them. Weep with them. Be sympathetic and understanding and listen because guess what? If they're going through it, if you try and say, oh, you got to listen to Todd's podcast, it might be premature. It might be do, do more damage and harm than good. 
They're not ready for that. They just want you to weep and listen and understand. What about when we Christians, we, we, arm yourself. When you go through something, there's a few questions to ask yourself. Is this suffering the result of my own sin or foolishness? And sometimes we can be too hard. Just because you swore today doesn't mean you're going to get cancer tomorrow. We can be very hard on ourselves, right? Let your pastor help determine that. And, and also, okay, God, what are you trying to say to me through this? What are you trying to say to me through this thing? If anything, what lesson are you trying to teach me? And what do you want me to do? And then lastly, hold on to your hope. Hold on to your hope. God sometimes vindicates. He sometimes brings justice. Remember the Joseph story. He's in prison by his own brothers. They sell him off, and he gets despitefully used there. And, but yet God vindicates him in the end. Sometimes that happens. Evil might triumph on this lifetime, but it won't tri- um, triumph ultimately. God vindicates. God is just. Justice might be served, not here, but later. And lastly, ask yourself, where would I turn? Where else would I go? Where would I turn to from Jesus? I started with Charles Templeton. Let me finish the story with Charles Templeton. In writing his book, Case for Faith, Lee Strobel interviewed the aging Charles Templeton. He was in his 80s. He was suffering from from Alzheimer's, but he was still lucid. He had his mind. And Strobel asked him, how do you assess this Jesus? And his answer shocked Lee Strobel. He says, Jesus is the greatest human who ever lived. He's the most important thing in my life. I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. This is the atheist, Charles Templeton. In my view, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, and and Lee Strobel says tears were flooding down his eyes at this point, I I miss him, he said. Here's the atheist that missed Jesus. See, there's no hope in atheism. There's no answers in atheism. There's nothing but despair and sorrow. Let me close this off in prayer. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that when, not if, when we experience the evils and pains and suffering of this world, that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on the next world, fixed on that which is eternal, keep our hope and trust in you, God, when we suffer and experience evil and pain in this life, help sustain our faith. Help sustain our trust, God. Trust that the all-wise, all-loving God is behind the scenes working everything for our good and His glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, Or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.